It's live. It is live. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to a, a, an episode of the Half Cousins podcast where Lacey is not here, unfortunately. She was having some car troubles. Uh, so everyone, if they could pour one out for Lacey's car, say a little <laughs> prayer for Lacey's car, that would be much appreciated. But I am not without good company because today we're going to be talking to Dr. B. Hello. Hi. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, mental health. Maybe like just kind of like basically like this this year has been a lot. There's a lot of things to talk about in the realm of mental health. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to have you want to talk about it. And funny thing is, I think you're the first person we've ever asked to come on the podcast who isn't like a YouTuber or like oh, a, cool. or like someone who had like a like a big online following and like makes content. Yeah. And people might be wondering like, like who is she? How do we you? I actually like found you on Twitter because mm-hmm. like you tweet about like stuff in the makeup community. And um, some people might recognize you from that because I know there are some people like you have a, you have a little Twitter following from that. Little one. <laughs> you were also the one um, who I reached out to when I was about to start therapy because I saw that like like in your bio like you were a therapist and I was like I, I remember I reached out to you and I was like uh, I don't know how to like find a therapist so can you help me out <laughs> help me out with that and that was almost over a year ago now so thank mm-hmm. you for that I know no problem. But, uh, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself and yeah, you know? um, all the good stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Sweet Shawnee B on Twitter, just in case anyone wants to follow. Uh, but I am a licensed psychologist. Um, I'm a counseling psychologist, which is a little different from other areas of psychology. In that, counseling psychologists, I think we attend to a lot more multicultural issues, a lot more social justice issues, and that just aligned really well with what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I'm originally from California, but I got my degree in the Midwest, which was really interesting. And now I am in the DC, Maryland area. So I am licensed in Maryland, DC, and Virginia. Um, And I see individual clients and I run, a, I run different groups. Um, I sometimes see couples, but honestly, I prefer working with queer couples. Um, I don't know why, like, I'm just like, in a heterosexual couple, I'm usually like, the man's wrong. Um, so. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I do try to hold back my biases, but I think for one thing, it's hard for, um, marginalized communities to even find resources. And so I just really enjoy working with queer couples and having some, you know, knowledge about what's going on. It really helps that. Uh, and then uh, outside of that, I love makeup. <laughs> Don't we I think all. that's I know. about it. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a sham right now. I'm not wearing any makeup. Oh gosh. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> How long have you been um, counseling? I'm getting old. Um, So, well, for for getting your PhD, you also have to do an internship. So it's very similar, like medical residents do their residency. Um, PhD students do an internship. So I went on internship in 2010. um, And then it's a year long and I was hired at that same facility. It was a, um, a university counseling center. And so officially like 
doing therapy where people are calling me doctor, <laughs> I would say since 2011, yeah, about 2011. Um, before then, you don't get to be called doctor. Um, so I worked there for quite some time. And I don't know if many people are familiar with university counseling centers, but it's pretty tough and kind of like a grueling job and it was affecting my health actually. So I decided to go into private practice about two years ago, um, full-time private practice. And then a couple of months ago, I broke off from the group I was with and now I'm in solo pra private practice. So it's been a couple of years now. So is private practice meaning that you like work for like a kind of like, a, like an independent company sort of thing? Or what, what does that mean? Yeah, sorry. It, it can mean a couple of things. Um, so when you hear that folks are at like university counseling centers or agencies or things like that, they're like at an agency, their boss is that agency or that university. For private practice, essentially you report to yourself. Um, some people will join a group. So like if you all were like, we're gonna do the half cousins therapy, practice <laughs> then like each person is like their own boss so to speak um but when you're part of a group the cool thing is that you then have people to consult with and refer to and you're not alone um but the, unfortunately the practice that I was at uh was all white and I was the only person of color um and there were just some things that I felt were not healthy for me as a black woman to be in. And so I decided to do go off on my own and be solo. So basically I do everything myself. I do my scheduling and my billing, you know, try to keep up with my website and like all of that stuff. You're a one woman show. Yes, except I did hire my sister. Um, <laughs> I do pay her. Um, and she is, <laughs> she's my office manager. Um, so that has been so incredibly helpful, especially during this time where I think the more folks are using mental health services. And sometimes it's hard for me to attend to all of my clients and then sort of go through the weeds of like emails and phone calls and yeah, so she has honestly been so helpful with that. Um, my family kind of made fun of me because I made her sign a contract. And I was like, this is a business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes that makes total sense because you don't want like, a, like if it's going to be a business arrangement, it makes sense to do a contract because yeah. you don't want people's feelings getting hurt. You don't want like... Um, exactly. Uh, the blinds to get blurred, like what you want roles to be defined, all that fun exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And because we're dealing with, um, you know, personal information, like she doesn't have access to client information, but they're often asking her about like billing or can they set up an appointment with Dr. B? Um, so she had to sign things for like HIPAA and things like that. So um, yeah. the one thing about being in private practice is that you have to figure all of that stuff out. When I was at a university, I was like, they can do it. <laughs> I didn't have to really worry about it. But um, the business of psychotherapy, I think we're not necessarily taught in grad school. Would you mind um, backtracking a little bit talking? You mentioned that the private practice you were at before, you didn't feel mm -hmm. like it was a, a good environment for you as a black woman. Yeah. You're, you're, like everyone else is white. Would you mind uh, expanding on that a little bit more? Yeah. So uh, the process to going into private practice, it took me a bit of time because I wanted to plan everything out because also, you know, 
you're not making money initially. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to just be like, peace out university and like not have any money. Um, so I actually joined two practices. One is in Maryland, one is in DC. The Maryland one is, is so interesting. The Maryland one is all black. <laughs> the DC one is all white. Um, so my experiences were just vastly different. Um, also the practice I was at in DC, uh, we worked with a lot of eating disorders. And so that sometimes meant that the population of clients we saw kind of skewed towards upper middle-class white women, even though everyone can have an eating disorder. Um, and so I noticed that the clients that would come to me were a little different. So I would get a lot more folks of color. I got a lot more queer folks. I got trans folks. And sometimes it was really difficult when we would like consult as a group because I was having different experiences with my clients or patients than my colleagues were. Um, or when things were happening at like the societal level, I would be feeling like, oh my gosh, like another black person in the media has been like assaulted or killed. And it was just like, no one could really relate um, or resonate with me. I think the thing that kind of tipped me over the edge was when um, I think it was George Floyd's murder this earlier this year and folks in the practice, except for like one person, um, one person reached out to me, no one else did. And I was just really hurt. I was like, wow, <laughs> like I am a black therapist. I have a lot of black clients. This is affecting everyone in the world. The practice is not putting out any sort of um, statement and you all are not even checking in on me. Um, not to be like self-centered or anything, but it was just like, yeah, how can you not check in with your black colleague slash friend? Um, so that really just hurt my feelings, honestly. And the it went even further when they were emailing like, hey, when can everyone meet for our regular meeting? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> like, I, I'm traumatized right now. I don't want to have a meeting about like, if we should change the lamps in the office. So it just felt like I wasn't being <laughs> being really like respected or cared about in a way that I really needed to be. Um, yeah, that was like the main thing. It just felt very much like these people were saying they cared about me and they appreciated me and the work that I was doing, but they just completely, their privilege, I think just sort of blinded them to the fact that like, hey, maybe we should see how our only black therapist is doing. Yeah, I feel like yeah. this year, in my opinion, whenever mm -hmm. we talk about like, um, like, because there's been a lot of like BLM protests this year. And mm -hmm. like the, I think probably a lot of people say that BLM is at like a high point as far as yeah. um, people talking about it. And it's mm -hmm. always the conversation is always centered around like police brutality and like um, mm -hmm. police murder and stuff like that. But we don't I, I feel like we're not talking about like other things yeah. like mental health in the black community. Yeah. Mm hmm. Totally. Um, I mean, from both sides, one, my family is still like, what do you do? <laughs> so, <laughs> I think there's this historical um, like lack of information around mental health in a lot of communities. Um, and oftentimes when I encounter folks who are black or people of color, a lot of them are like, I didn't know that, you know, 
black people went to therapy or I didn't know that Latinx people went to therapy. Um, or there are these other things that are encouraged as opposed to therapy. So like going to church and praying and you keep everything in the family, like you don't tell people outside of it. Um, and there's also, there's still so much stigma, I think, around mental health and so much like just ignorance. Um, and I think also because a lot of people will use words kind of flippantly, like, oh my God, I'm so depressed today, or I'm so anxious. And I think that takes away from some of the severity of how those um, mental health diagnoses can actually affect people. Like being sad is not the same as being depressed and being a little nervous about doing a speech is not the same as having anxiety and a panic attack. Um, so definitely within the black community, I think there, I think more and more resources are being opened. I think there are a few more <laughs> black therapists that are showing that not only can we go to therapy, but you can also go to someone who kind of looks like you. Um, but I think it's still, I would say the majority of folks who are going to therapy still are white individuals. Well, therapy is a, not only is there a lot of stigma attached to it, but it's really expensive to do. Oh my God. It's hella expensive. Sorry. Can I say hella? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Therapy is expensive. Like (laughs) I say that to people who call me and they're like, I can't afford your fee. And I'm like, girl, I know (laughs) it's a lot. Um, So I always encourage people, especially if they're at like a university, go to their counseling center. Like this is the only time you're going to get some therapy for free. Um, It's really in their student fees. Um, Or I always encourage folks like ask the therapist you're talking to, do they have a sliding scale fee? Um, And that basically means that they'll take their original fee, let's say it's like $230 and they can slide it, slide it down. So sometimes folks cannot afford that much. And so maybe you can afford a hundred or whatever it is. So that's one thing. And then there are also therapists who do pro bono work. So I often keep several slots open for each of those. Um, But then insurance, like, I don't know, it's a lot. (laughs) So insurance doesn't pay for much, doesn't give the therapist much reimbursement. And so you can imagine that you are sitting there for 45 minutes talking with someone and they pay their copay of $15 and you get like $60 back from the insurance company. That's just not enough to live off of. Um, So therapy can be pretty inaccessible, I think. And I think it's such a disservice on both sides, on the client side, on the therapist side. Um, I think our mental health like system just needs to be overhauled. For me, I also was a little nervous about charging people. Like I was saying, they don't really teach you how to do this stuff in grad school. Like they teach you how to do the therapy when the person comes in the room. (laughs) But as far as you setting up that room and everything, they don't really teach you that. So going from a university counseling center for about 10 years where I wasn't taking any money from people to now being like, so this is how much I charge. And like, this is how you write me a check or (laughs) you give me your credit card. I didn't know how to do any of that. And I initially think I set my fee pretty low. 
but I started to realize like, wait a minute, like you have some skills, <laughs> like you have some specialties, you can like bump that up and be on par with the folks around you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really expensive. I go to therapy, I have a psychologist and I asked him for a reduced fee. <laughs> I was like, I can't afford you, sir. <laughs> do you, do you go to therapy because of like, you need to go to therapy because like it's hard with like the mental health aspect of for your mental health dealing with your job. I'm sorry. I'm not phrasing that correctly. So I started going to therapy in grad school uh, because it was sort of a, they wanted us, the faculty wanted us to see what it was like to be on the other side. Um, so that was really, really interesting for me. I initially went and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, you know, everything's fine and we can meet like once or twice a month and then cut to like a month later. And I was like, I need to meet with you more. Um, so doing that, I was able to recognize like some of my own mental health struggles that I had been dealing with. Um, when my psychologist at the time told me that I had depression, I was like, no, I don't. I don't know. Like, what are you talking about? Um, so it was really helpful to sort of see and learn from someone who was providing the service as well as like while I was learning in school. Um, so I've continued off and on for years. Uh, and I specifically chose this most recent therapist to kind of explore family stuff. Um, like history of family trauma and things like that. And I wanted specifically a male therapist. Um, and really? I actually, I wanted this person. <laughs> I wanted him specifically. Yeah, I, I've i always had um, therapists who identify as women. And I wanted to see what it was like <laughs> to work with someone who didn't identify as a woman. And, you know, stereotypically with the having daddy issues. <laughs> um, I was like, it's probably going to be good for me to work with a therapist who's an older man um, to just sort of work out some things. So yeah, it was a bit surprising for me that I was like, no, I think I really want to work with a male therapist. But I knew that I wanted to work with this one specifically, because he had consulted with us at the counseling center. And I remember thinking, if I need to find a new therapist, I need to go to him. Um, so I would say that the, the client stuff isn't necessarily why I'm in therapy. I mean, it can be helpful sometimes if I've had like a really tough session or really tough weeks um, to just be like, oh my gosh, like it was just really hard to be a psychologist this week. But mainly it's to make sure that my stuff is okay so that I can be there for my clients. Um, yeah. So if your therapist is like on the floor crying with you, like, I don't know that that, that really <laughs> evokes like safety and like, you know, so I, I go to make sure that I'm talking through my own concerns. I'm talking through my own relationship issues, my own family issues, so that when my clients come in, you know, my stuff isn't spilling over. That makes sense. Um, is Did he have to get special training to do therapists for a therapist? No, we don't get that either. <laughs> I'm like, God, they just throw us out there. So I've actually seen quite a few therapists as clients. Um, and it's interesting because it's like, you try to not be biased. Like, well, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, I think for therapists, sometimes it's 
we have the same kind of concerns as folks who are not therapists. Like, oh, I don't need therapy or I already know what they're going to say and all this stuff that feels very true until you sit across from someone and they sort of read you therapeutically. Um, But no, no special training. I, though, knew he had been in practice for like quite a long time. I didn't want a newer person, um, which feels kind of bad to say, but I was like, we have to go back to like neonatal for me. (laughs) So I need someone who can like drive this bus because we're going back to like before birth and I really need to delve into some things. So yeah, you don't necessarily get trained to work with other therapists. Um, And I think sometimes it can be hard to see other therapists as clients because it's about remembering that they're a client right now. They're not a therapist in this role. So I've, I've actually gone to someone who kept saying things like, well, you know how this is, you're a therapist. And I was just like, well, but I don't want to be a therapist right now. (laughs) Like (laughs) help me. Um, So yeah, you don't get any like specific training, but sometimes we have to hop around too, to see who's a good fit for us. Yeah. I think there was um, some questions that people had for us. And one of them was, like, how do you go about like getting into therapy or like finding a therapist or if you don't find like the right one right away? Yeah. Like, how, how do you do all that? <laughs> yeah, I like to tell people like therapists professionally, we are used to being broken up with. Personally is a whole other story. <laughs> that one hurts. Um, but professionally, you kind of learn not to take it too personally because you're not going to always be a good fit for someone. Um So the ways in which you can look for therapists, uh, it sort of depends on if you're wanting to pay out of pocket or if you're wanting to go through insurance. With insurance, you can always call your insurance company and get a list of referrals. Um, The thing about that is that you're sort of like shooting in the air because you're not sure who these folks are. So I always tell people like look people up, see if they've got like a website or anything like that or social media. Um, But some other sort of easier ways to do it are to go to websites like Psychology Today. Um, And it has a list of therapists just across the world. So you can put in that you're looking for a therapist in Los Angeles who takes Aetna insurance or something. Uh, The nice thing about that is that you can have a profile on there so you can see what the therapists, like how they describe their work. You can also see the types of work they do, the types of populations they work with. And so I always encourage people like take a quick look on psychology today and see who you come up with. The nice thing about psychology today, like hashtag not sponsored, um, (laughs) is that you can filter like by insurance, you can filter by if you want someone who, um, is LGBTQIA allied or someone who has worked with female reproductive issues, like you can really kind of narrow it down. Um, The thing with that though, is that there's a wide variety, like there are so many people on psychology today. So sometimes it can be hard to know if this is the right person for you. Um, So usually another thing I suggest is to either call or email, which I know can be really, really hard for a lot of folks. Um, asking people to make phone calls yeah I know I know um yeah calling or emailing because sometimes then you can hear the person's voice you can like ask them a question some psychologists or some therapists will give short consultations so you can ask like you know have you worked with people who have 
my concern or have you worked with um, this group of folks? I do some work um, with various queer clients. And so I'm really comfortable answering questions like, have you ever worked with a trans client or do you work with any like um, folks who are in non-monogamous relationships? So I think especially if you have a specific concern that you want to make sure is attended to, it's totally okay to ask the therapist, like, do you work with this population or have you ever? Um, usually a therapist will answer your questions um, or they'll have like office staff who can do that. Um, I would say another thing is if you can get a referral from a friend, that's always pretty helpful. I've had clients who say like, oh, my sister's looking for a therapist or my friend, my partner, whatever. And I don't take them on because that's a boundary issue. But I have like in my head, like a Rolodex of therapists that I can say, oh, hey, check out this person. Tell them Dr. B sent you. Um, because then that creates a network for us. And it also is a way to know like, well, this person has been referred by this person. And I think sometimes that feels a little bit better than just like cold calling someone. Hmm. I would say for um, recently or a couple years back, Therapy for Black Girls came out and there's a website where you can go in and you can look for Black therapists. Um, and then for like, the LGBTQIA population, oftentimes you can still do like psychology today, but also if there is like an LGBT resource center in your area, they can be a good resource. They'll have like lists of therapists that are um, qualified to work with uh, LGBTQIA folks or going to like the Trevor Project. Sometimes even just typing in in Google, like, I don't know, black woman therapist <laughs> um, will pop up with stuff. But the thing too is that, you know, you want to make sure it's accessible in terms of finances. And then also you want to make sure you have a good fit with the therapist. I often sort of joke that finding a good therapist is like dating, which everyone who hears that is like, oh God, <laughs> I want to do it. But um, research shows that the a good marker for progress in therapy is the connection between the client and the therapist. So going to that first or like first one to three appointments, I think you can kind of tell like, okay, this is someone I can connect with or I feel safe with, or like, no, this isn't someone that I want to continue with. Um, so I would say trying it out a bit is usually the best way. And having a couple of those websites like Psychology Today, um, going to your LGBTQ Resource Center, those are great ways to find therapists. Or also if you have a medical doctor, anyone like that, asking them if they have any referrals too. Do you have any specific advice for anyone who is low income and looking for mental health services? Yeah, that can be super tough. I think the whole system is like not really set up for everyone to have access. Um, there usually are community agencies that provide therapy and often at a sliding scale fee. So if you've already contacted folks and they aren't able to give a sliding fee or do pro bono or free work, then there are usually like community agencies that provide therapy. Those can be at no cost, at low cost. Um, 
The other thing that I often have my office manager tell folks if they aren't sure that they can afford the fee is to go to Open Path Collective. That is a uh, website where you can pay a set fee and they will match you up with a therapist. So there are therapists who um, connect with uh, Open Path Collective and offer their services for a lower fee. So that's another way. Um, also, there are often like scholarships for therapy. Um, the one that I have actually taken from people is from the Loveland, um, Loveland Foundation. That is specifically for Black women and girls. So you can get a scholarship for a certain number of sessions and you just have to check to see if the therapist takes that. Um, I've done it. It is a lot lower than my fee that I charge folks, but I know that these are people who cannot afford the services. And for me, it's like, if someone is going to pay for these services, like I want to be able to offer these services. Um, but yeah, it can be super hard, especially if you're trying to go through like Medicare or things like that. I My niece, who's like super old now, but she was um, trying to look for a therapist and it was such- I just, uh, I just cut out for a moment. Oh, okay. What's the last- you... <laughs> It was just for like the last 20 seconds. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> what did I say? Oh, it can be really hard if you don't have insurance or you don't have like anyone to pay for your therapy. Um, but there are always, always community resources and it never hurts to just reach out to someone and ask, hey, do you have any sliding scale fees um, for therapy or do you know anyone who does? Um, or, you know, going through like Medicare, Medicaid, those kind of things, that can be tough also because sometimes you're going through like hoops just to get to someone. Um, but I would say the community agencies are like the best resources. Froze for a second. Okay. Can you hear, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is why I don't like teletherapy. <laughs> right. So I've been in therapy for the past year and a bit. And mm -hmm. when, when COVID and quarantine started and I got an email from my therapist saying that like, we weren't going to do like in-person sessions until this was mm -hmm. over. I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to wait for it to be over yep. and then I'll come back to therapy. <laughs> Cut to October. <laughs> and then um, like two months, like two months ago, I sent my therapist an email and I was like, Hey, can we like start doing <laughs> teletherapy now? Cause like, I really need to like talk to someone and this isn't going away anytime mm -hmm. soon. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. Like a, No. Wait, you froze. We froze again. Okay. Am I, am I back? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry, everyone. I don't know what's going on with the internet connection right now. It's um, stupid. But yeah, this this definitely sucks because this happens exact. This is the exact same thing that happens when you're in <laughs> when teletherapy, um, or like anyone I'm assuming right now has been like on a Zoom call for work this year or done anything like this. It's it's all the same. Yeah, it's frustrating. No, oh, you're frozen. Are you serious? Oh, wait, you're back. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, teletherapy. No, I, can, I, can, I can hear you now. Okay. As long as you can hear me. Teletherapy is, it's had a boom um, with COVID. 
Uh, and I think a lot of therapists were sort of scrambling, like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Like, you don't want to put yourself in danger by going out and you definitely don't want to put your clients in danger. Um, so the tricky thing with that also is there are rules in terms of where you can practice. So I personally have a good amount of college students that I see, and some people were staying home. That could mean that they're in California or they're in overseas or something. Um, and I had to make sure that I knew the licensing laws wherever they are, because you can only, oh, are you there? Okay. Sorry. You, are. Um, Sorry. you can only practice where you are licensed. Uh, and then, you know, there's also the thing of internet connections and also not everyone has access to the internet or it's like a laptop or a phone. There are privacy issues. Um, you know, my cat interrupts every session. But also, if you're a college student and you're living at home, do you really want to be doing your session and then your parent like walks by in their underwear or something? So uh, teletherapy has been, I'm glad that it's accessible. It makes it accessible for people. I even do a women of color group and we meet by via, you know, virtually. Um, but it's so different from the in-person kind of process. And you never know if someone's internet's gonna go out or what. It can be a bit frustrating. Yeah, I would definitely say that um, like the main reason why I didn't wanna do teletherapy, and I remember telling this to like my therapist and also my husband when this started mm -hmm. was like, like I already do the podcast or like I talk to people mm -hmm. online and I already yeah. talked to like a bunch of people online. I don't, I don't yeah. now want to talk to my therapist online. Like the, yeah. the ritual for me of actually like getting in my car, driving, like going to the building, like going to sit in right. my office and like have therapy. Like it was like, yeah. you know, that, that sort of aspect was important for me. And then it mm -hmm. kind of just felt like, I don't know if anyone else has felt this this year, but it feels like when you're doing everything from your home, it's kind of like, I don't know, it almost diminishes the value of things, especially like people from yeah. working from home. It's like you get up, go to work, and then you go to bed. It's like you never leave your right. house. It's, it's just weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've talked with my clients about setting up different spaces. So even if it's like a tiny corner of your room or the living room or something, make that your workspace. And the other thing that I do is I get dressed for work every day. So I won't do therapy in my like pajamas or workout clothes. Like I am dressed as if I were in the office. So that for me really helps me have some like psychological distance. Like I know, okay, I am sitting in this chair. Um, I'm using this light. This is my workspace. And the rest of the house is like not. So I've encouraged people to find some sort of distance there if they can. It's the same thing I've told college students um, who have to do things in their bedroom or dorm room, like don't do your homework in bed because your body and your brain is used to having the bed as like sleep. Um, so I just tell people, keep your bed for sleep and sex, do your homework somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it can be definitely hard though if you're in the same place all day and then you have to jump on a video to see your therapist. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind if I ask you some questions from our patrons? Sure. Uh, 
Laura says, I don't know if this would even be a good question or not, but what challenges do black people face with their mental health that is different mm -hmm. from white people's? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, well, <laughs> the mental health field and black people haven't always gone like hand in hand. Um, I don't know if many folks are aware of like things like the Tuskegee um, experiment where black men were uh, purposefully injected with syphilis. Um, so there are so many things like that where it's like, of course, we're not going to trust the medical or mental health field. We've got this history of, you know, being used for different things. But I would say, you know, same issues that everyone else faces, Black people face too. We get depression, we get anxiety, we get eating disorders. Um, one thing that's becoming a bit more uh, I guess talked about is racial trauma. Um, so the experience of racism over and over and over again can actually elicit like symptoms of a traumatic um, disorder. And I don't think that that was always recognized or validated. So when I have folks who come into my office who identify as black, I'm often talking with them about like, those are trauma reactions that you're having. If someone is driving or if you're driving and you see a black person being pulled over by a white police officer and your heart starts racing and you start sweating, like that's anxiety and trauma. Um, so I think that that's one thing that is not always evident in some other identities where folks aren't experiencing that level of um, discrimination sort of on a daily basis, really. So that's one thing that I think is a little different. Um, what I also know in terms of eating disorders is that Black women used to be seen as being like buffered from having an eating disorder. <laughs> I laugh now because the research, like who thought that? But like, so the thing that would happen is that black women were often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all with eating disorders. Um, and so that can then lead to not great treatment um, or not feeling validated by your experience uh, or thinking like something's really wrong with you um, or nothing's wrong with you because no one's noticing. So that is something. And then oftentimes black individuals will come in at a higher level of distress than their white counterparts. Um, and I think that is because of a variety of things. Uh, therapy is still stigmatized in so many communities. And I think with a lot of black individuals who identify with some sort of faith-based practices, oftentimes you're told to pray, um, you know, take it to the altar. And I have been like, well, Therapy and church and prayer can go together. Like they're not mutually exclusive. Um, so I would say those are some of the things. And one thing I can share is during this COVID quarantine, I've had some black women who tend to get their hair straightened or relaxed. And now they're recognizing their natural texture and they've like ha haven't seen their natural texture since like childhood. And it's sort of like, whoa, this is weird. Like, how do I do my hair now? I don't know that that really? necessarily happens with white folks. Um, and I don't know that a white therapist would know to no. ask about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've had clients who feel comfortable, like, oh my God, I don't know what to do <laughs> with my hair. I've like never seen it like this. Um, there's also stuff, I think the, the disorders and the symptoms and stuff are often very similar 
Um, but sometimes there are a few like caveats, I guess, like anecdotally, we might see more binge eating disorder than anorexia in black, um, individuals. Um, but then once you start going even further into like our queer black, uh, clients, then their concerns might be a little different, especially if you are a trans black woman, like the level of safety that you probably don't have in the world can definitely affect then how you're feeling when you come to therapy. Um, so yeah, I think that there are, the biggest one I would say is like racial trauma that affects black people a little differently because imagine seeing someone who looks like you being like killed or degraded in some way consistently across social media or across the news media and then you have to go to work or you have to take care of your family so oftentimes we're dealing with a bit more of that internal stuff and I for one think I mean I'm not a medical doctor but I think sometimes that can account for things like hypertension or high blood pressure that's diagnosed a lot in the black community um, or like high cholesterol like if you're holding on to trauma, that's going to affect you. Hopefully there, that answered her question a little bit. Is there, um, is there anything in the DSM or is there any um, new research that's being done about racial trauma specifically? No. <laughs> Nothing in the DSM yet. Um, the DSM is an interesting thing. You know, I think it wasn't until the 70s that... Uh, homosexuality, and I say that in quotes, um, it was like still in the DSM as a disorder or something. So, you know, DSM is a little behind, like that's not in there anymore. Um, but I don't think they've quite gotten to that place of racial trauma. Um, I went to a, con a virtual conference uh, the other day and asked about, they were talking about PTSD and so I asked about racism um, and the presenter, an older white man was like, oh, are your clients experiencing racism? Yes. Like what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like wh what do you mean? Like, ugh, I was so frustrated. Um, so no, it's not in the DSM. There is more. And for those who don't know, the DSM is like the Bible of psychology. Um, there is more research coming out on racial trauma and I think it's being recognized a bit more. I would say that there has been um, research around racial identity. So there is like a people of color racial identity model. There is a white people like racial identity model. Uh, those have been around for quite some time. I think now this sort of like newer wave of um, psychologists of color are kind of delving into the trauma aspects of living in our American society. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm having flashbacks of when I used to live in Canada and my mom was like, let's move to the States. It'll be great. Land of opportunity. <laughs> kind of oh, like, God. Yeah. Go back. Go back. Let's right. go back. <laughs> Undo. <laughs> yeah. Um, it looks like a lot of the other questions on here. Oh, here's another follow-up to the a question. Um, do you find that systematic racism or overt racism, racism or microaggressions um, can affect Black people's mental health? And how do you deal with that in therapy? So it's, I guess it's kind of a more specific question yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> it can be really hard, honestly. Um, 
So when I do an intake, which is like the first session that you go to with your therapist, I tend to ask about all identities that the person has. So that is asking about their race, their um, ethnicity, religion, their gender identity, sexual orientation. Like I really want to get an idea of all of who the person is because some of those things might determine um, how your symptoms are presenting or what you're thinking of them. I've had folks who identify as Catholic or Christian in some way and are feeling super guilty about like masturbating or something. But if I didn't ask them about being their religion, I wouldn't know to be like, no, dude, that's like totally normal for an 18 year old. Um, So when it comes to things like microaggression, systemic racism and oppression, I think those things definitely have an impact. I can say that it has had an impact on me, um, not only personally, but professionally. I think what can be really helpful is having that experience like validated so that the person doesn't think like you're just making this up because especially for microaggressions, I don't think we often talk about like the subcategories of microaggression. I think it's like micro insult, micro assault and micro invalidation. So those are all like small ways that we are sort of impacted, like hearing people say, oh, well, you don't talk like a like a black girl. Um, You speak like a white girl or wow, you're a psychologist. Um, just different things like that. Like, it's like, huh, are you insulting me? (laughs) Like, I think you are, but I'm not sure. Like, that's how I can always identify a microaggression because it feels like, like it might've happened, but you're not quite sure. So for someone to be like, no, that was wrong of them. That can be very validating for a black client. I think also I've had black women who are in like, high positions, like being in the DC area, I work with a lot of folks who are part of the government and talking about like the things that they're experiencing, their um, power being like undermined or being passed up for promotions or um, having medical students who don't pass because of like, they missed one point or something. Like if someone comes into your office and is a person of color, a black person, and they talk about that, I think it's so important to just validate that because sometimes it's like, you're questioning yourself. Like, did this really happen because I'm black? And sometimes we need to hear, yes, it seems like it did happen because you're black. Um, so I think those things can definitely have an effect. I know for me personally, I have been questioned typically um, by white clients a lot of times, like wanting to know where I got my degree and how long I've been in practice and not wanting to work with me because I'm black, um, because they don't think that I will understand their concerns. Um, I've also, yeah, it's, (laughs) I've also had some black clients who I think because of growing up in our, you know, racialized society will say things like, I don't know if I want to see a black doctor or they want their partner or child or whatever to go be seen by a white doctor. So that happens. um, And it can happen in the course of a day for me. And that can be really hard to sort of deal with or put aside so that I can be there for my clients. Um, So yeah, it, it definitely affects us as I say, black people. And I've had those things happen personally and professionally. 
going back to what you said before about the the subcategories of microaggression, mm -hmm. what were what were the three again that you said? Um, let me make sure I'm right. Um, there's micro insult. There's micro invalidation, and I think it's micro assault if I'm not mistaken. So I mean, they're all microaggressions and you know, you don't necessarily have to break it down to like, well, you're micro invalidating me. Um, but there are these kind of categories. So the invalidation piece would be, this actually happened to me where I had an older white woman who was obviously uncomfortable with me in the room. Um, she decided she didn't want to continue working with me. And I went to the owner of the practice who is a white woman. And I was like, yeah, this is like really hard. I'm really frustrated. Like I get so tired of being questioned because of my blackness. And she pulled the, well, not all white people. And I was just like, girl. <laughs> oh man. So I felt so incredibly invalidated. Um, and just like my concerns were brushed aside. Um, a micro uh, assault, I think it's more just kind of your, just more aggressive, I guess. Um, and then a micro insult is something like, you know, oh, well, you, you don't look like you came from the hood or something, or you speak so well for a black girl, um, or wow, you made it all the way through to get a PhD. So it's just like, well, damn, <laughs> like, wow, thanks. Um, yeah, I, that's I've never, I've never heard someone, um, like break them down into different categories like that. Mm -hmm. I've always, I've always just heard it like generally for, referred to yeah. as microaggression. Well, so I had like an intellectual crush on <laughs> the therapist who came up with microaggressions or kind of talked about it initially, um, Daryl Wing Sue. And I met him at a conference once and like my mouth dropped open. My mentor was like, close your mouth. <laughs> So I've always just been interested in hearing about it more. And I think oftentimes having the sort of breakdown for me can help me with clients, like identify things for them. Um, like I said, I don't think you have to, but I think it does sort of explain even more what a microaggression is. Because it's yeah. not like overt racism usually, but it's like this, this little stuff. Going back to what you said earlier about um, having had black clients who don't want you as a therapist because they would mm -hmm. prefer to have a white therapist. Mm -hmm. Is that like a form of like internalized racism and they don't, they assume that like a white person would be better for them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know which one hurts more, honestly. Uh, and I try not to like blow smoke up my own butt but I have like awards and like I've been, I've been like, you know, recognized by the American Psychological Association, like all this stuff. But I don't say that to clients like, you know, well, I have more awards than the person you're going to go see. Um, but it, it's for me, it sort of proves that a lot of people see me as a black person first and don't necessarily see me as a psychologist. And I think that can be good at bad, good and bad at different times. Um, sometimes it comes with a bit of, like I said, invalidation or lack of respect, where people will assume that they can call me by my first name when I've introduced myself as doctor. Like, I personally don't go to my doctors and call them by their first name. I don't know if that's just like a cultural thing or what, but I, I don't walk in to my gynecologist, like, hey girl, hey Nancy. I like <laughs> call her oh doctor, you know what I mean? And so yeah. 
when it comes from a black person, like I've had like college students be like, my parents think I should see someone else or something like that. It, it hurts because I'm like, wow, they are not even giving me a chance. Um, I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, like, I don't even, I think it is internalized racism. I've been able to confront one client about it. (laughs) It's like, I heard you don't want to talk to a black person. (laughs) But other than that, I kind of have to process it on my own or, you know, with colleagues or with my own therapist because racism still exists everywhere we go. And, you know, psychology was started by older white cis heterosexual men. Um, Those are our roots in, you know, the field. Everything. And so, yeah, pretty much the world, America. (laughs) (laughs) And so, of course, it's going to pop up um, even if we don't want it to, or even I thought like I wanted to be a doctor because I was like, oh, wow, that's going to give me like some prestige. And that's going to prove to people that I like know what I'm doing, but I still am undermined and questioned more so than um, some of my white colleagues. Even in thinking of the fees that we charge, I have folks who have a lesser degree and lesser experience than myself, and they are charging more than I am. But I know that some people are not going to want to pay me as a black therapist $250. I think that's so crazy for to hear you say that because like, my uh, my stepdad has a PhD, and I, mm-hmm. I I I know how much like time and effort and work goes oh into God. getting yes. getting <laughs> Like it's 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 not just something you can go to like Kinkos or FedEx no. and like <laughs> get someone to make you like a copy and you stick it on the wall. Oh, I wish I'm like I have the student loans to prove, um, and it like it sucks because I went to a really good program, like one of the top ones. I went to a really top internship. Um, I worked at a really top counseling center, you know, and, but that stuff often is overshadowed by my race. That's, that's, I don't, I don't even know how to like react to that. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. What do you say? You know, like I recognize that it's my reality. Um, and I can say like, I, I, get more people working with me than the people who like don't want to work with me. And I also, I don't assume that every client who walks through my door is going to be like, Oh my God, I love you. You're going to fix my life. You're like Iyanla. Um, but I, the ones who sh- like show their racism, that stuff hurts. Um, even if I know like, well, you have a full caseload tomorrow. Still, if one person comes in today and it's like, oh, I don't want to work with you because I don't think you're going to know um, how to relate to me because you're black. It, I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't, th- I don't even think I could, I, again, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, it's like, I don't really know how to follow this up or like, yeah. I mean, and you can't like curse them out. Right. Like you still got to be professional, but in my head, I'm like, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's good to have community, um, whether that's professionally or personally. So I do have folks I can like call and be like, I had this experience and like, Sometimes I like my colleagues and I, we have to remind each other, like, no, 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 you are good at what you do. This is that person's problem. Um, But yeah, I can 
name all of my black colleagues have had experiences like that and it it just shakes you a little bit and it makes you question yourself do you i was gonna like i ask i know you said like at your your previous practice um everyone mm-hmm. else is white but do you connect like on online with like other black therapists is there like a like a group for you guys or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like we have to start this yes there is um at the more like national level, there is the Association of Black Psychologists, ABSI. Um, there are also like little pockets in different places. So in DC, uh, there are like DC Black Therapists or um, Black Therapist Rock. Like there are different ones that you can find to join. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think it was like Black Therapist Rock or something. I actually reached out to them after one of these experiences with someone who questioned me based on my race and talked to the woman who's in charge of it. And she really validated me. Like that was all I needed. I just needed to hear like, hey, this happened for this reason. We've experienced it too. And that just made me feel like, okay, like this other people understand what I'm going through. Um, The field is still like there are pockets of the field where it's still predominantly white, predominantly heterosexual, predominantly female. Um, Like the eating disorder community is still a lot of thin white women who provide therapy. Um, And there are starting to be more people trying to expand that. Like I went to a conference recently virtually where we were talking about diverse groups and eating disorders. So we talked about the LGBTQIA community and eating disorders and various ways that they present and for black women and for men and for all of these folks. Um, So you can like find your people, so to speak, but you know, psychology is just like every other profession. Like, yeah. (laughs) What would you like to see um, as far as like, reform with like with healthcare or like specifically for mm-hmm. like mental health care like what would you like if you if you could be like in charge of a committee and you have to like Ooh. like build everything <laughs> from the ground up like what would you like to see change? I'd be like burn it all down um, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there isn't as much respect for mental health as there is for like medical health um I would want to see it sort of kind of leveled with medical stuff because I think that oftentimes mental health diagnoses are just kind of, they're like brushed away, but these diagnoses really, really affect how people are. Like it's, it's very difficult to kind of go about your normal everyday life. If you, there's my cat. (laughs) Um, This is what happens in session and my clients are like, Oh my God. Um, But yeah, like, I think those things really affect people in a significant way. And sometimes I have to do a bit of convincing with clients, like, you have depression, and this is why all of these things are difficult, and we need to attend to those things, as opposed to if someone broke their leg, like, it's super obvious, like, your leg is broken, we've got to fix this. But I think because mental health can often be invisible, um, that it makes it a lot harder for people to sort of give it the, I guess, respect and the like attention that it needs. I would wish for schooling to not be as expensive. (laughs) So I think that's part of it too. Like we come out with some 
some loan. I think my like great, 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 great grandchildren are going to be playing, paying my loans back. Um, so that part kind of sucks. But I also think um, com- like insurance companies could work a bit better to uh, fund mental health services, whether that is um, giving you know, or giving insurance, folks who have insurance more access to things, but also paying the providers a bit more because what we get reimbursed is just like a fraction of the cost. Um, And initially I was like, why are psychologists so expensive? (laughs) But once you sort of think about it and think about where we're dealing with people's lives, like I have had folks who have, Um, hurt themselves in in various ways from minor to extremely serious. And I'm expected to be able to help that person. But it's really hard if I'm not being paid enough to sustain myself. Um, So I wish there was more funding there. Um, So access, I think, is just a huge thing. And I, I just wish also that it was talked about more and normalized, like that it's okay to go to therapy. It's just like going to get a regular checkup at your doctor. Like it's totally fine. It doesn't mean you are quote unquote crazy, or maybe it does mean that, (laughs) Um, but at least like you're going to get some help. But I think there's just so much stigma and it gets in the way of so many things. If anyone in the chat right now, if you have any questions for Dr. B before we head out, that would be great. Otherwise I think all the questions that I had submitted before you kind Mm -hmm. of put earlier, because there were questions about like how to find a therapist, like, stuff like that so you've kind of answered everything yeah and I'm totally open to people like dming me and being like hey I need to find a therapist um I can usually give at least some advice on that I have a question for you yes have you ever needed to like fire a patient or a client oh yes (laughs) how does that work um so I sort of look at it from an ethical perspective. If I feel like I'm not the right fit for this person, for me ethically, I need to fire you. <laughs> Whether that is because, you know, I'm having some sort of tra- counter transference where my own stuff is coming up or um I just feel like I don't know how to deal with this. I have had to tell people like you know, I think you need a level of care that I cannot provide, but here are these three referrals. <laughs> I already called them and they all have openings. Um, <laughs> so yes, like, I think it takes humbling yourself as a therapist and being like, this might be something that I cannot work with. Um, or like, I'm just not a good fit for this person. So I've had somewhere when I initially started out, um, alcoholism runs in my family. And I was like, I cannot see anyone who has an alcohol problem right now because I'm too in the weeds of my own, working through my own stuff around this. And for me, it would not have been very helpful to the client to be sitting where I was in sort of that, that thought process. It wouldn't be good for me to be working with them. Um, Other times it has been things where like, I think the person needs a higher level of care than just 45 minutes to an hour, one day a week. Um, And I think they need to go to like a treatment facility. Um, There have been a few where I'm just like, 
we don't like each other, do we? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> Let me find you some referrals. Um, because, you know, personalities clash. Sometimes my personality doesn't get along with the client's personality. And because I come from, I think, an interpersonal perspective, which means that I really rely on the relationship. If we can't connect, then I'm not going to be able to provide you with the best possible care that I can. And so I sort of think of it from an ethical perspective, like it is my ethical responsibility to provide good care. And if I cannot provide good care for whatever reason, then I cannot work with you. Okay. So this is like a, are you trying to fire your therapist? No, I I love my therapist. I was going to ask something else. Um, I, I, I love the TV show Frasier. And uh-huh. one of the things that popped up on there a lot, like when they were talking about just like psychology in general, was the mm-hmm. idea of like your patient falling in love with you and becoming obsessed with you. <laughs> Has that ever happened? Or like you know that happened to anyone else? Um, let's see. <laughs> yes. Um, huh. There, there are a couple. That? Well... <laughs> I don't know if it's super common, but again, and this might be just me protecting my ego. (laughs) I sometimes think it's like, oftentimes you're saying really intimate personal things to your therapist and this really strong bond forms. I think sometimes that can be mistaken for like, oh my God, I'm in love with my therapist. But, you know, we therapists are human. Some of us are attractive. And so I think that sometimes <laughs> clients, you know, they they respond to that as well. Um, so I've had several clients where I sort of feel like there is something they're giving me that I'm not trying to give back to them because I am not trying to lose my license. Um, sometimes you have to address it in that that is so uncomfortable. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like, because you don't want to be like, well, you kind of find me attractive, right? Like, it's just, it's uncomfortable on either end. Um, I mean, the therapist has to be the one to sort of take the lead on that, I think. And it's totally normal. You're giving me all of this intimate information. Of course, you're going to feel connected to me. That's sort of like what I do. I don't necessarily say, of course, you want to sleep with me. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, there's this strong connection we have. Um, I really appreciate you telling me how you feel. Uh, You know, I you know, this is a professional relationship. And that's one reason why um, clinicians, therapists need to make sure they have boundaries. Like there are things that you can be on the lookout for. Like if you're going way over time with your client or you're saving this client to the end of the day because you like want to spend more time with them or um, you're wearing certain outfits so that you look cute for the client. Like those are things therapists should be aware of. (laughs) Therapists should definitely be aware of um, and kind of see how a client is interacting. I try to see everything as like psychological. So I'm like, well, if they are thinking this is a romantic connection, I'm wondering how is that going outside of this therapy room? Are they reading people incorrectly? Are they like picking up on things that aren't there? Or are they trying to be seductive in a way? Not necessarily a sexual seduction. 
but some clients will like just talk about things more in depth than I think you need to. And they might sometimes be wanting to get a rise out of the therapist. Um, but yeah, like I think I've had initially in training, you are supervised when you're beginning. And my supervisor was like, this client is attracted to you. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no, they're not. Um, this was like way back in grad school. And then she pointed out all these things. And I was like, oh my God, like, what do I do? <laughs> like, um, I've had more overt and very uncomfortable experiences where this wasn't a client. This was just a person in the area or in the building and they were like "Ooh, are you a therapist I need me a therapist and I was just like ew <laughs> like I'm not here to make friends <laughs> I felt very oh like America's Next Top Model um but yeah like it happens or you might think a client is attractive like you just can't act on it um that's how you get your license taken away <laughs> I'm assuming you probably heard stories of that happening in the industry of like oh yeah yeah it the lines get blurred for a lot of people um and so I think especially if it's just like you're you're letting the I think it's all often on the the therapist has to be the one to make sure they're setting those boundaries. And so if they are not being like really firm with those things, like if they are doing things like going over time consistently or, you know, interacting with the client, you know, outside of the therapy room when it's not necessary, different things like that, where therapists are human. So same ish can happen to, you know, regular folks, but we have an ethical duty to not let that happen. And I think in terms of like malpractice and stuff, it doesn't happen very often with therapists, but I wanna say that one of the main reasons is because of some boundary overstepping like that. And that's a good way to get your license taken and be done with work ever. <laughs> I was, that's always the thing in like movies and TV shows. Oh my God. Yes. I hate that. And I was always wondering like, how often does this really happen? Not very, in my understanding, not very often. Every therapist in a movie is like seducing their client or something. And I'm like, <laughs> no, this is so bad. We don't do this. Like, also, I think, too, if you're sitting and you're hearing some of the things people tell you, it can be hard to be attracted to them. <laughs> it's like, you have got to fix this <laughs> before you are ready to be in a relationship. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think the lines can get a little blurred. I, I often think it's like you're making this intimate connection, but can recognize that sometimes, yeah, clients are going to be attracted to you for whatever reason. Um, but it does not happen as much as it does in the movies. <laughs> is there any movies or TV shows where you think there is a good representation of what it's like to get therapy or a, or hmm. a therapist? Yeah. What was that show? I think a lot of people talked about The Sopranos as being a pretty good one, I think. Somebody went to therapy in that. Like I was saying earlier, I tend to watch really like fluffy movies because, because one of my specialties is trauma. Um, at the end of the day, I sometimes just need like a, let me just watch this Disney Channel show. Um, <laughs> uh, there was a show years ago called In Treatment. Um, that one was pretty interesting. It was like a therapist and it was like the perspective of him and his clients and then the perspective of him and his supervisor. I thought that was pretty good overall. 
I want to say I'm remembering though, that there came a point where one of his clients was attracted to him. And then I was like, okay, well <laughs> that's done. Um, no, I can't even, yeah. I can't even think of anything where I'm like, wow, that was a great example of how therapy kind of works. Um, I mean, Frazier, um, but there are just, there are just aspects of therapy that I don't think you can understand unless you have been in therapy. Uh, and so when I see these people like writing these shows and movies about falling in love with their therapist or whatever, then I'm like, either you fell in love with yours or you have kind of no idea how this works. Um, but I can't think of any ones that for, oh, you know, which one was okay. Um, Dr. Akopian, was that her name on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? At least for the first, like, two seasons. <laughs> I didn't watch much beyond that. Um, but, yeah, I thought she was pretty good. Do you, yeah. in your office, uh, have, like, the Shays Lounge? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I have a couch. <laughs> It's not like a laying down couch. People will lay on it. Um, but typically your therapist's office is going to have a chair for the therapist, usually a comfy one, hopefully, because you're sitting in that chair for like eight to 12 hours. And then a couch or a chair for the client. Some people may have the chaise lounge. I actually kind of now want one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be very much my aesthetic. Um because my clients get to know my personality and they would not, I don't think they would bat an eyelash if like they came in and a chase lounge was there and I was like draped across it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> typically like you're going to have a couch and a couple chairs. Um, there probably are some people who still have sort of like the lounge laying down kind of couch, but that's a very specific type of therapy. That's psychoanalysis. Um, Otherwise, you know, a lot of what your therapist's office is going to look like often reflects their personality. Um, so I have like, um, like I have this thing that I got off of someone on YouTube. I, or, I can't even get it. It's like, ah, there it is. I have this. Ooh, can you see that? Oh, roses. Yeah. And it says love is love. I have that. I have like a poster of a black woman and, you know, like an African figurine and like um, a lipstick. It's like a card holder that's shaped like lipstick or whatever. Um, so a lot of times what you see is going to be a reflection of the therapist themselves. I would say we often have like blankets, <laughs> and like big sweaters. It's like the stereotypical like, yeah. I don't know, therapist outfit. Um, but yeah, not many chaise lounges. <laughs> I was not like I didn't I wasn't ever getting like upset upset but sometimes my therapist would change stuff around in her office and I would notice <laughs> it and I'm like why did you change it it looked good before yeah you get used to it right like you get used to the space um I usually add things I don't usually take away uh I also have like fidget cubes um for folks who kind of feel anxious to have something to kind of play with um pillows people like to hug the pillows a lot uh yeah but like now for real I think I might look for a, a lounge chair 
I used to have a chaise lounge in my bedroom when I was a Did teenager. You? When I was a oh. teenager. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know. If, like, I don't why know. did you have a shade lounge as a teenager? Well, I don't know how like other people's parents were, but like they would just like get furniture from someone and they'd be like, it's going in your bedroom. Or like, we don't have room for it. It's going here. And it was, it was, uh, it was purple too. And it had legs. Wow. So it was like a beauty and the beast chaise lounge. You know what I mean? Like it was like a anthropomorphized chaise that lounge. That is amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. I used to lay on it and be like, this is weird. <laughs> in my bedroom is a teenager. But it's comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you want a comfortable couch in your office because like you want your clients to be comfortable and no lie. Like sometimes we have to catch a quick nap in between sessions. <laughs> So if you have a comfortable couch, that really, really helps. I would, I would imagine. So yeah. Blankets, pillows, comfy couch. You could, I feel like therapists can do so much in 15 minutes because that's usually how much time we have in between sessions. I have literally been able to like write a note, eat lunch and take a nap in 15 minutes. So <laughs> like you want your office to be comfortable. I don't think I could do that in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we have such limited time, you know. Um, you got to fit a lot into those, the times in between the sessions. And again, because I do a lot with trauma, like sometimes I do just have to like lay down for a second um, or just go talk to someone else for a moment, like, or take a quick walk. Um, because it can just be, it's a lot sometimes to sit with folks who are going through trauma um or kind of reliving it mm. uh so just it's sort of mirroring the client they're probably exhausted from the trauma and so some of that exhaustion can kind of translate sometimes is there anything else you want to talk about before we before we wrap this up anything else you want to say i don't think so i hope i answered people's questions and that's about it <laughs> thank you so much for coming on if people want to thank you, you for having me if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they do so? Uh, where am I? Um, Sweet Shawnee B <laughs> uh, is my, what's it called? Twitter, Twitter handle. Um, honestly, I'm like one of the only black psychologists in the DMV area. <laughs> so <laughs> you can probably type in black woman psychologist in DC and that will be me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a landing page. <laughs> Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to follow me, I don't give like advice or anything on my like personal Twitter page. I keep it separate from my professional one. Um, but if someone needs anything, they can definitely reach out and I will do what I can to help. Thank you. I've always, I, I've never forgotten when I reached out to you and you helped me. So it's always like, it's always stuck with me and I've always appreciated that. Yeah. I was so proud of you. Going to therapy can be hard. I know I needed to do it. Otherwise it was not going to be good. I hear you. I've been there. <laughs> well, thank you so much to everyone for watching this episode of the half cousins podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. B for coming thank on you. here. I'm sorry. Lacey couldn't be here. Again. I know. If anyone wants to say a little prayer for Lacey's car, <laughs> I'm sure she would appreciate it. Her like 40 year old car. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an old car. Uh, we will see you later. Thank Bye, you everybody. so much for having me. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for Bye. coming on.